Part 2, Chapter 22 of The Patrician by John Goldsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 2, Chapter 22 In the hall, someone rose from a sofa and came towards him. It was Courtier. Run you to earth at last, he said. I wish you'd come and dine with me. I'm leaving England tomorrow night and there are things I want to say. There passed through Milton's mind the rapid thought. Does he know? He assented, however, and they went out together. Difficult to find a quiet place, said Courtier, but this might do. The place chosen was a little hostel frequented by racing men and famed for the excellence of its stakes. And as they sat down opposite each other in the almost empty room, Milton thought, Yes, he does know. Can I stand any more of this? He waited almost savagely for the attack he felt was coming. So, you're going to give up your seat, said Courtier. Milton looked at him for some seconds before replying. From what town crier did you hear that? But there was that in Courtier's face which checked his anger. Its friendliness was transparent. I'm about her only friend, Courtier proceeded earnestly. And this is my last chance, to say nothing of my feeling towards you, which, believe me, is very cordial. Go on, then. Milton muttered. Forgive me for putting it bluntly. Have you considered what her position was before she met you? Milton felt the blood rushing to his face, but he sat still, clenching his nails into the palms of his hands. Yes, yes, said Courtier, but that attitude of mind, you used to have it yourself, which decrees either living death or spiritual adultery to women, makes my blood boil. You can't deny that those were the alternatives. And I say... You have the right, fundamentally, to protest against them, not only in words, but deeds. You did protest, I know, but this present decision of yours is a climb down, as much as to say that your protest was wrong. Milton rose from his seat. I cannot discuss this, he said. I cannot. For her sake, you must. If you give up your public work, you'll spoil her life a second time. Milton again sat down. At the word must, a steely feeling had come to his aid. His eyes began to resemble the old cardinal's. Your nature and mine, courtier, he said, are too far apart. We shall never understand each other. Oh, never mind that, answered courtier. Admitting those two alternatives to be horrible, which you never would have done unless the facts had been brought home to you personally. That, said Milton icily, I deny your right to say. Anyway, you do admit them. If you believe you had not the right to rescue her, on what principle do you base that belief? Milton placed his elbow on the table, and leaning his chin on his hand, regarded the champion of lost causes without speaking. There was such a turmoil going on within him, that with difficulty he could force his lips to obey him. By what right do you ask me that? he said at last. He saw Courtier's face grow scarlet, and his fingers twisting furiously at those flame-like moustaches but his answer was as steadily ironical as usual. Well, I can hardly sit still my last evening in England without lifting a finger, while you immolate a woman to whom I feel like a brother. I'll tell you what your principle is. Authority, unjust or just, desirable or undesirable, must be implicitly obeyed. To break a law, no matter on what provocation or for whose sake, is to break the commandment. Don't hesitate. Say, of God... More of an infallible fixed power, 
Is that a true definition of your principle? Yes, said Milton between his teeth. I think so. Exceptions prove the rule. Hard cases make bad law. Portier smiled. I knew you were coming out with that. I deny that they do with this law, which is altogether behind the times. You have the right to rescue this woman. No, Courtier, if we must fight, let us fight on the naked facts. I have not rescued anyone. I have merely stolen sooner than starve. That is why I cannot go on pretending to be a pattern. If it were known, I could not retain my seat an hour. I can't take advantage of an accidental secrecy. Could you? Courtier was silent, and with his eyes Milton pressed on him, as though he would dispatch him with that glance. I could, said Courtier at last, when this law, by enforcing spiritual adultery on those who have come to hate their mates, destroys the sanctity of the marriage state, the very sanctity it professes to uphold, you must expect to have it broken by reasoning men and women without their feeling shame or losing self-respect. In Milton there was rising that vast and subtle passion for dialectic combat which was of his very fibre. He had almost lost the feeling that this was his own future being discussed. He saw before him in this sanguine man, whose voice and eyes had such a white-hot sound and look, the incarnation of all that he temperamentally opposed. That, he said, is devil's advocacy. I admit no individual as judge in his own case. Ah, now we're coming to it. By the way, shall we get out of this heat? They were no sooner in the cooler street than the voice of Courtier began again. Distrust of human nature, fear, it's the whole basis of action for men of your stamp. You deny the right of the individual to judge, because you've no faith in the essential goodness of men. At heart you believe them bad. You give them no freedom, you allow them no consent, because you believe that their decisions would move downwards and not upwards. Well, it's the whole difference between the aristocratic and the democratic view of life. As you once told me, you hate and fear the crowd. Milton eyed that steady, sanguine face askance. Yes, he said, I do believe that men are raised in spite of themselves. You're honest. By whom? Again Milton felt rising within him a sort of fury. Once for all he would slay this red-haired rebel. He answered, with almost savage irony. Strangely enough, by that being to mention whom you object, working through the medium of the best. I priest! Look at that girl slinking along there with her eye on us. Suppose instead of withdrawing your garment you went over and talked to her, got her to tell you what she really felt and thought. You'd find things that would astonish you. At bottom, mankind is splendid. And they're raised, sir, by the aspiration that's in all of them. Haven't you ever noticed that public sentiment is always in advance of the law? And you, said Milton, are the man who is never on the side of the majority? The champion of lost causes uttered a short laugh. Well, not so logical as all that, he answered. The wind still blows, and life's not a set of rules hung up at an office. Let's see, where are we? They had been brought to a standstill by a group on the pavement in front of the Queen's Hall. Shall we go in and hear some music and cool our tongues? Milton nodded, and they went in. 
The great lighted hall, filled with the faint bluefish vapour from hundreds of little rolls of tobacco leaf, was crowded from floor to ceiling. Taking his stand among the straw-hatted throng, Milton heard that steady, ironical voice behind him. Profanum vulgus! Come to listen to the finest piece of music ever written. Folk whom you wouldn't trust a yard to know what was good for them. Deplorable sight, isn't it? He made no answer. The first slow notes of the Seventh Symphony of Beethoven had begun to steal forth across the bank of flowers, and, save for the steady rising of that bluefish vapour, as it were incense burnt to the god of melody, the crowd had become deathly still, as though one mind, one spirit, possessed each pale face inclined towards that music, rising and falling like the sighing of the winds, that welcome from death the freed spirits of the beautiful. When the last notes had died away, he turned and walked out. Well, said the voice behind him, hasn't that shown you how things swell and grow, how splendid the world is? Milton smiled. It has shown me how beautiful the world can be made by a great man. Suddenly, as if the music had loosened some band within him, he began to pour forth words. Look at the crowd in this street, courtier which of all crowds in the whole world can best afford to be left to itself, secure from pestilence, earthquake, cyclone, drought, from extremes of heat and cold, in the heart of the greatest and safest city in the world, and yet see the figure of that policeman, running through all the good behaviour of this crowd, however safe and free it looks, there is, there always must be, a central force holding it together. Where does that central force come from? From the crowd itself, you say? I answer, no. Look back at the origin of human states. From the beginnings of things, the best man has been the unconscious medium of authority, of the controlling principle of the divine force. He felt that power within him, physical at first. He used it to take the lead. He's held the lead ever since. He must always hold it. All your processes of election, your so-called democratic apparatus, are only a blind to the inquiring, a, a sop to the hungry, a, a salve to the pride of the rebellious. They are merely surface machinery. They cannot prevent the best man from coming to the top. For the best man stands nearest to the deity, and is the first to receive the waves that come from him. I am not speaking of heredity. The best man is not necessarily born in my class, and I, at all events, do not believe he is any more frequent there than in other classes. He stopped as suddenly as he had begun. You needn't be afraid, answered Courtier, that I take you for an average specimen. You're at one end and I at the other, and we probably both miss the golden mark. But the world is not ruled by power and the fear which power produces, as you think. It's ruled by love. Society is held together by the natural decency in man, by fellow feeling. The democratic principle which you despise at root means nothing at all but that. Man left to himself is on the upward lay. If it weren't so, do you imagine for a moment your boys in blue could keep order? A man knows unconsciously what he can and what he can't do without losing his self-respect. He sucks that knowledge in with every breath. Laws and authority are not the be-all and end-all. They are conveniences, machinery. Content pipes, main roads, 
They're not the, the structure of the building. They're only scaffolding. Milton lunged out with a retort, without which no building could be built. Portier parried. That's rather different, my friend, from identifying them with the building. They are things to be taken down as fast as ever they can be cleared away, to make room for an edifice that begins on earth, not in the sky. All the scaffolding of law is merely there to save time, to prevent the temple as it mounts from losing its way and straying out of form. No, said Milton, no. The scaffolding, as you call it, is the material projection of the architect's conception, without which the temple does not and cannot rise. And the architect is God, working through the minds and spirits most akin to himself. Ah, we are now at the bedrock, cried Courtier. Your God is outside this world, mine within it. And never the twain shall meet. In the silence that followed, Milton saw that they were in Leicester Square, all quiet as yet before the theatres had disgorged, quiet yet waiting, with the lights like yellow stars low-driven from the dark heavens, clinging to the white shapes of music halls and cafes, and a sort of flying glamour blanching the still foliage of the plane trees. A whitely wanton, this square, said Courtier, alive as a face, no end to its queer beauty. By Jove, if you went deep enough, you'd find goodness even here. And you'd ignore the vice, Milton answered. He felt weary all of a sudden, anxious to get to his rooms, unwilling to continue this battle of words that brought him no nearer to relief. It was with a strange lassitude that he heard the voice still speaking. We must make a night of it, since tomorrow we die. You would curb license from without, I from within. When I get up and when I go to bed, when I draw a breath, see a face, or a flower, or a tree, if I didn't feel that I was looking on the deity, I believe I should quit this palace of Arates from sheer boredom. You, I understand, can't look on your god unless you withdraw into some high place. Isn't it a bit lonely there? There are worse things than loneliness. And they walked on in silence, till suddenly Milton broke out. You talk of tyranny. What tyranny could equal this tyranny of your freedom? What tyranny in the world like that of this free, vulgar, narrow street with its hundred journals teeming like ants' nests to produce what? In the entrails of that creature of your freedom, courtier, there is room neither for exultation, discipline, nor sacrifice. There is room only for commerce and license. There was no answer for a moment. And from those tall houses whose lighted windows he had apostrophised, Milton turned away towards the river. No, said the voice beside him. For all its faults, the wind blows in that street, and there's a chance for everything. By God, I would rather see a few stars struggle out in a black sky than any of your perfect artificial lightning. Suddenly it seemed to Milton that he could never free himself from the echoes of that voice. It was not worth while to try. We're repeating ourselves he said dryly. The river's black water was making stilly, slow, recessional under a half-moon. Beneath the cloak of night, the chaos on the far bank, the forms of cranes, high buildings, jetties, the bodies of the sleeping barges, a million queer dark shapes were invested with emotion. 
all was religious out there, all beautiful, all strange. And over this great, quiet friend of man, lamps, those humble flowers of night, were throwing down the faint continual glamour of fallen petals. And a sweet-scented wind stole along from the west, very slow as yet, bringing in advance the tremor and perfume of the innumerable trees and fields which the river had loved as she came by. A murmur that was no true sound, but like the whisper of a heart to a heart, accompanied this voyage of the dark water. Then a small blunt skiff, manned by two rowers, came by under the wall, with the thudding and the creak of oars. So, tomorrow we die, said Milton. You mean, I suppose, that public life is the breath of my nostrils, and I must die before I give it up? Gautier nodded. Am I right in thinking that it was my young sister who sent you on this crusade? Gautier did not answer. And so... Milton went on, looking him through and through. Tomorrow is to be your last day, too. Well, you're right to go. She's not an ugly duckling who can live out of the social pond. She'll always want her native element. And now we'll say goodbye. Whatever happens to us both, I shall remember this evening. Smiling, he put out his hand. Moritioros te saluto. End of part two. Chapter 22